Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about a contemporary psychoanalytic concept applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Jan Abram. Jan Abram is a training and supervising analyst of the British Psychoanalytical Society and in private practice in London. She's visiting professor of the Psychoanalysis Unit, University College London, and is currently the vice president of the European Psychoanalytic Federation. She's a visiting lecturer and supervisor at the Tavistock Clinic in London. In 2016, she was a visiting professor for the University of Kyoto, Japan, where she resided for a writing sabbatical. Jan Abram has published several books and articles, notably The Language of Winnicott, first published in 1996, and judged the Outstanding Academic Book of the Year in 1997. Donald Winnicott Today for the New Library of Psychoanalysis and co-authored with R.D. Hinchelwood, The Clinical Paradigms of Melanie Klein, and Donald Winnicott, Comparisons and Dialogues. She's recently published The Surviving Object, Psychoanalytic Clinical Essays on Psychic Survival of the Object with a New Library of Psychoanalysis. In 2023, her second book with R.D. Hinchelwood will be published, and it's titled The Clinical Paradigms of Donald Winnicott and Wilfred Bion, Comparisons and Dialogues. Professor Abram will discuss the Winnicottian understanding of play, the use of an object, and how we surmise Winnicott may have thought about video games. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicole, for inviting me. It's a delight. You've written extensively about Donald Winnicott, a pediatrician and psychoanalyst who was uniquely approachable and insightful, I think, in his writing. He wrote a great deal about the use of an object, taking Melanie Klein's ideas in a new direction, and also wrote a great deal about play. Can you tell us a little bit about these two ideas and what they mean for you and for our aliveness in relationships? Yes, I'd be pleased to do that. But if you don't mind, let me first of all introduce Donald Winnicott for those who've never heard of him before and who he was, because I think this will contextualize his contribution, as I understand it, on play and the use of an object. Is that okay? Of course. So, Winnicott, he referred to himself as DWW. His name was Donald Woods Winnicott, and Woods was his mother's maiden name, actually. And he often signed himself off as DWW. He was born in 1896, died in 1971. And yet his ideas and his thought is becoming more and more known in both the developments in psychoanalysis and psychology, but also in the arts and beyond. You're right, he was first of all a paediatrician, and then, because of his own emotional problems, as he freely admitted, he kind of found psychoanalysis. He became a sailor during the First World War. And although having studied medicine for three years, He was the only medic on that destroyer, and he witnessed a lot of carnage during the nine months, which happened to be the last nine months of World War I, of his close colleagues. Now, on his return 
he noticed when he went back to to complete his studies that he wasn't remembering his dreams. So already, I think this indicates that he was quite a psychologically minded man. And he went to the library in Cambridge. He was studying at Jesus College, University of Cambridge. And he said, do you have any books on dreams? And lo and behold, the librarian came up with the interpretation of dreams. And many of your listeners may know that that was a book that was published in 1896 in German by Sigmund Freud and is really seen as the cornerstone of Freud's work. I think he must have intuited that he was traumatized like everyone who goes to war and and has had to be active in war. But after reading that book, he never really looked back. And by 1923, he was in analysis and he happened to be in analysis with James Strachey, who'd been in analysis for two years with Freud. And by 1934, Winnicott was a fully qualified psychoanalyst. And alongside his pediatric work, he analysed both children and adolescents and adults. So my point here is that in order to be an analyst, you need to be in touch with your own suffering and to have had experience in the context of analysis of working through that suffering. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to drink your own tea, it sounds like, or your own medicine in some ways. Absolutely, absolutely. So when he qualified in 1934, Melanie Klein had been living and working in London. She came over in 1926 from Berlin, and he was very inspired by her work, as many of the analysts in London were. He had consultations with her on his analytic work with children, but he started gradually to disagree with her. He had his own way of thinking about things and diverged from many of her concepts. My perspective, in a nutshell, is that Winnicott's work, that is his final clinical paradigm, as I call it, is a significant advance of Freud's work with some divergences, which we will come to later on. The roots of Freud and the sharpening of his formulations emanated from some of the different ways of looking at the world in dialogue, I think, with the Kleinian development of the day. And that relates to the book that I published in 2018 with Bob Hinshelwood. I've uh, proposed in Donald Winnicott today that the major psychoanalytic paradigm changes from Freud's classical metapsychology are coming from Klein and Winnicott. But my point in that book is that they are very different paradigms, even though there are many, many overlaps. But let me go back to your question about the concepts of play and the use of an object. I hope I've given a bit of context there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You've selected very important concepts in Winnicott's work. And you see that while Melanie Klein tended to examine the content of play when working with children, Winnicott was more interested in the capacity um, of play when working with children. He focused, therefore, on the process of playing 
and what would emerge from that process in the context of relating and relationship that is forged with the therapist. Now, it seems to me that you've picked up that his work is about aliveness, and I would say liveliness and relationships. This is his main contribution. It's not that Freud and Klein ignored relating, but it was that Winnicott said, it was Winnicott who said, there's no such thing as a baby. In other words, there's no such thing as an individual outside of a context. And the context is what he called the environment. And I tried to emphasize in my work that the environment that he was referring to is an emotional state of mind coming from the mother. She really is the most important person to begin with for the baby towards her infant. So to briefly conclude, the capacity to play, i.e. playing means that the infant has evolved a crucial capacity to grow psychologically. And the roots of that capacity begin at the very start of life in the womb. And the point of birth and the earliest moments and hours and days of the infant's life are crucial. The mother's dedicated attention and state of mind will make all the difference to whether the infant will be able to grow emotionally alongside their physical growth. The two have to go in tandem for a healthy development, which is another concept Winnicott introduced to psychoanalysis. Um, I don't know whether you want to ask me anything there, Nicole. Because- yeah, I do, actually. I sort of want to get a little philosophical and, and really define what play is. I mean, I know it when I feel it, and I know it when I see it. But maybe for our listeners who, you know, we all know play. It, it's an everyday word. What, what would you say a psychoanalyst would describe as play or playful? Well, I think it is a very uh, crucial question, and it is something that... I hope and think that we're doing right now. <laughs> yes, it does feel rather playful. <laughs> well, yes, in, in the sense that you'll say something and that might instigate some thoughts and feelings that I have. And what I'm saying to you has obviously instigated what playing actually means. It's very interesting in Winnicott's work. He tends not to talk about play. He talks about playing. Mm-hmm. It's the gerund of the English language that he's interested in. So it's a process. How do we exchange between each other? And how do we evoke feelings and thoughts in each other? It is how we relate to each other, even though you're now sort of in the morning in California and I'm in the evening in South Wales. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it gets me thinking in the everyday use of the word playing, we would think of joy and positive feelings back and forth. You know, maybe a mother playing with her child might be building a Lego set and it might be joyful. It might be frustrating at times, but it's mostly joyful. And there's pleasure in the everyday use of the word. And yet what you just said about relating and inspiring or instigating feelings in the other and back and forth, I wonder if that doesn't perhaps include lots of frustrating or difficult relating. That could also be considered playing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you don't have tension and if you don't have angst, then it can't really be productive. So playing is something. He actually said that psychoanalysis 
is the sophisticated action of playing. Hmm. And that, I think, is his extension of the idea of free association in Freud. Mm -hmm. The ability to take a risk that whatever you say to the other, of course, you hope that you're not going to be saying anything that's manipulative or controlling. Mm -hmm. The capacity to play is related to actually not knowing what might be said and what might be felt. You're just trying something out, you're improvising, and you have to be open in order for that to kind of function and work. So sometimes it will, it, it does include frustration uh, as any learning process would, but playing shouldn't be prescribed. It's very different from playing a game where you can be playful, but there are rules in games. Mm -hmm. And that's where for some children, depending on their age, if they're playing a game that's actually too sophisticated, then they can get much more frustrated than they need to. And that's why children's games are often geared for a particular age group, because they take account of their stage of development. Mm -hmm. So I have a, an interesting question then. There are rules and that constrains the play. The psychoanalytic relationship takes place inside of a frame. So there's somewhat, there are rules to a certain extent. It's either in an office or online and it, it lasts for, you know, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, whatever the, the amount of time is. But other than that, it's relatively free. Exactly, exactly. And the frame is absolutely crucial because if you don't stick to that frame, then you actually can't be free. It's very interesting what you say, because Winnicott said that when he talked about hate, which was something I was going to come on to, and the capacity to hate, because he disagreed with Melanie Klein that it was innate. He felt that hate was a developmental achievement. And he said once that hate, the way in which the analyst expresses hate, is uh, saying that time is up at the the session. But the fact that the patient actually might be relieved, I often think it's not just the analyst that may feel hate at the end of the session, it's also the patient. They actually feel terribly relieved that they are now being sent away because they know they're going to come back the next day. Well, if you're in a high frequency, intense relationship, depending on the analytic frequency. And just for the lay listeners, psychoanalysts, and maybe you can say a few words about this, the word hate is used in a very specific way, I think, psychoanalytically, meaning all expressions of, and this is how I understand it, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, all expressions of aggression or, or, or those kinds of things kind of get balled up into this concept of hate. Whereas in the everyday use of the word hate, I think it's more an extreme definitive state of mind that we might hold toward one person in the everyday use of the word hate. Is that correct? Well, it's a very good question, yes, because I realize I've been answering you and talked about hate after you talked about joy, mm -hmm. which we can come to in terms of the use of an object. But yes, you see, in Winnicott's language and in his use and development of psychoanalysis, Hate can be either pathological or healthy. He was very clear about making a distinction. And that's why he talked about the need for the expression of hate by the end of the session. 
It's not a pathological killing the other off. It's actually recognizing I've had enough now. And this is related to boundaries Mm -hmm. and the need for every individual to have a boundary between themselves and the other. And actually, that can also be joyful. So it's a paradox, and he's really good at paradoxes. Coexistence of love and hate. And if you cannot recognize this coexistence, and he said that it starts with the mother hating her baby, but it's not a pathological hate. It's because she he's got 18, he wrote, he wrote a paper with 18 reasons why a mother hates her baby from the beginning. Um, and one of them was that the first one was that the baby is not her own conception. Mm. which is an extraordinary thing to say, really, because, of course, the baby is her own conception. But what he means by that is that when she sees the baby, this is not the baby she had in her imagination. Uh Uh And she realizes that this baby is their own self. Mm -hmm. They are going to grow and develop, and she is not going to be in control of the way they develop. She's going to facilitating and that's her role but she cannot be in control and that would be a pathological mother this mother knows intuitively right at the beginning that she has to watch her baby grow and be who they will need to be and will need to become and this is what she will hate because if she recognizes that she really wants to control them and of course in fantasy she did control the baby but in reality, it's the difference between the fantasy and the reality. In reality, she has to recognize that she's with a real human being who has their own set of ideas. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to, you were going to say a little bit about the use of an object. I wanted to go back to that, perhaps. Yes, let's go back to that. So this is a very enigmatic concept of Winnicott's, and it was crystallized, actually, in his late work. In fact, he gave his paper, The Use of an Object, in 1968, when he was about 72, to the analysts in New York. I think he gave that paper to New York because he thought they would understand it more than the people back in London. In fact, he was wrong about that because they didn't understand it either. But I've suggested that it constitutes the pinnacle of his work. And I've also suggested that I think it's his alternative theory to Freud's concept of the death instinct, which is a concept that Klein also developed from the Freudian death instinct. So they use the same term, death instinct, but I think if you look very close reading of Freud and Klein, they're different concepts. And so in different ways, the negative bad aspects of human nature were innate, and they named this the death instinct, whereas Winnicott disagreed. It's one of his major divergences with both of them. For him, the life instinct was more important. And he described the life instinct as very much like fire. And depending on how it's used, depends on whether it is healthy and good or unhealthy and bad. So it's not so much the object, and this will bring us to technology and video games, as the use of an object. 
a knife, for example, an everyday tool that we all have to use to eat our food. Winnicott said, as I've just been talking about, hate is a developmental achievement. The baby is not born with an innate hate. Innate aggression is benign. It's an energy, a force. That's really, I think, what he means by the life instinct. And it depends on how the mother receives the benign aggression, say from the infant kicking, right from the beginning, from the womb. Most women are very pleased at that early moment when they feel what is called the quickening, you know, four Mm -hmm. months, five months. But as the baby grows quite big in the womb, the kicks can be quite painful. And towards the end, the kicking towards the ribs, it can be something that is is very uncomfortable, especially at night. And it makes a big difference to the way the baby experiences the life forces in their body, depending on how the mother has received those kicks, whether she's able to recognize that this is normal in the baby and that these kicks are not malignant and they are not hateful. They are all about the baby checking out the environment, in fact, and the boundary of the environment. If the baby stops kicking and withdraws, inside the womb and or outside the womb, the womb, then this is very problematic because a baby and a baby in the first 24 hours could learn very, very quickly that the mother cannot stand the aliveness of the baby and the baby intuits it and starts to withhold and withdraw. I think, I think that can happen as early as as 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I'm struck by that. That seems, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, so much is going on already pre-verbally in the communication. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And this is where he was such, Winnicott was such a big believer in Freudian analysis and the unconscious and early psychic, what he called psychic communication. And I think the more we learn about analysis from the beginning, the more we learn about really what happens to the adult and what may have occurred to the adult as they have evolved from that very beginning, from their birth. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking so, so clearly about what you're talking about as it relates to the toddler stage or adolescence, where there is a lot of boundary testing and pushback and so on. I mean, these these phases continue. It's not only the adult and the infant, and there's some direct line, but all along the developmental continuum. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, and for Winnicott, it starts from the beginning. So if things go badly at the beginning, I'm afraid he's absolutely clear that there's no chance other than through a false self. So a traumatic birth, is something that has to be overcome by the development of a false self. And that's no, it may be absolutely no fault of the woman and the situation, but it is something that has to be recognized because the earlier you recognize it, the more it can be acknowledged and worked through. 
I wonder if we could talk a, a little bit about video games. I know this is kind of a hard pivot, but there's something about that you mentioned about play and the use of an object as it relates to video games. And I wondered if we could delve into that a little bit. I raised the question of video games because I've been noticing, I, I don't work with children. I understand that you're not a child analyst, but many of the parents that I do work with, many of the children that I'm acquainted with and that I see or don't see, seem to be playing more inside with video games, with social media, with cell phones, and so on. And that seems to be replacing outside play with others in real life more and more. And it kind of conjures for me this image of a what I call a man boy who fails to launch, kind of lives in his parents' basement, has high hopes of being a video game streamer, drinks those energy drinks all day and eats microwave pizzas or something, working the bare minimum, maybe not going to college, not launching fully, and socializing mostly online. This seems to be super restricted to me in terms of experiences and movement and, and relationships. But for some of the people who do engage in this kind of intense video games, the play is joyful and it is social and it does involve relating. What do you think of these kind of trends and experiences? And are you encountering them? And what would Winnicott have to say about this kind of play and use of an object? Well, I, I think he'd have so much to say about technology today. But essentially, I don't think it would have been so different from all of his theory, as I said so far. In other words, it's not so much technology in the video games, social media and all of that. It's the use of them. How does the child make use of them? How does the adolescent make use of them? Now, your picture of the solipsistic, often male, which I think is another interesting point, who fails to launch themselves, the video game addict while drinking and eating, I'm afraid is a picture of the deficiency of the use of an object, even though it might look like he's using the object. But his use, I would suggest at its most pathological end, is actually an abuse because it's like food. It should be healthy and keeps us alive. But if it's abused and if there's overeating, it becomes addictive. And therefore, it does the opposite. It gradually kills us and destroys us psychically and physically. So if, if we think of this in relation to joy, as you've mentioned, in the scene you create, I would say, and I think Winnicott would say, it's masturbatory which is defensive and doesn't help you grow. So the relating is not to evolve, but to stay in the same place. And it provides a sense of power and control, but it's false, it's fake and cannot evolve and therefore cannot grow. And so stultifies the psyche and the person does not become enriched because it's really through relating with another who says something different, who challenges you, that is really what is enriching. But the use of some games can be to grow and to evolve. And this will depend on the user and what their early experience was. But I do want to add that I do think it was terrible what happened during the pandemic. And I think during the pandemic, where we all were told to stay at home, and I, I don't know what it was like in your area, 
Nicole, but that's I know how it was. Yes. Yeah. And I think we all had to regress to maybe something that was more pathological. And none of us liked it because even the most healthy of us found ourselves perhaps on our computers doing email much more than we would be mm-hmm. otherwise. And I think that shutdown was so damaging for absolutely every one of us. And why? Because I think it was traumatizing us. We were all, before the vaccine came out, I think to begin with, certainly in the UK, was absolutely terrifying for so many. Mm-hmm. And it was a very strange sort of enemy, you know, it, it, and lots of people have written about this. So I think, although I wouldn't want to take back what I've already said, I do think it was a specific, the pandemic did have its specific conditions that really drove many of us quite mad. And many of us might have been lucky with large gardens and, you know, we were able to get out. But I think people in smaller places with no gardens, no balcony, I think it was extraordinary how so many people did survive psychologically but I'm sure it was at a certain cost, like any kind of traumatic. Mm-hmm. I think you're onto something here with with the con- the recent context being uh, important, and I think collect the collective trauma of that. But I'm also thinking about how video games launched. There were many, many kids, at least here. I don't know how it was in the UK, who stayed home from school for at least a year, if not a year and a half. And basically did all of their schooling online. And in that, many kids were using video games during class when they weren't supposed to. They were supposed to be listening to their teachers, of course. And many parents were complaining about this. Teachers were complaining about this. But there was no way to sort of prevent it or help them feel alive in this deadening kind of Zoom school environment. And that seems to have persisted now that there are vaccines and there's lots of activity that's coming back. It still seems like we're a little bit regressed or or stultified or something as a collective. There are fewer parties. There's more restraint. There are still, you know, mask wearing at different points. We can't always socialize outside because it's raining or what have you. I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Are we all collectively maybe a little bit still regressed or using using these these objects that zoom and what have you in unhealthy ways i think so and i wouldn't necessarily say it's unhealthy i think one would have to look case by case um, but for example a child at whatever age of development that gets addictive and actually so addicted to a particular game that say may be very violent, I would imagine that this is defending against the sense of trauma that every child must have experienced because the grown-ups around them were feeling traumatized. And so it's bound to have its impact on them. And therefore, if you can get into that solipsistic world, where you're not being penetrated by the outside, it feels much safer because you feel in control. Mm -hmm. And so it's understandable. So for example, if a patient of mine were telling me about their son or their daughter that was manifesting this behavior, I would say that I would recommend that 
it get tracked and somehow thought about with the child. When does it happen? How does it happen? And how much discussion is there of how anxious we all are? If we can talk about these anxieties, maybe that kind of defensive behaviour won't be so necessary. I'm not saying it's going to go overnight by any means, but it's how it's locked down and locked in, isn't it? That's what needs to be addressed, really. It's an understandable response. And for some children, it might have even been, and still may be, a healthy response. But I think if we want to label it as pathological and don't help the young person to think through what it might mean and why they have to do it so often during the day, then we're not helping them work out what it is that causes that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an interesting thought that I have too. There's this business of the social influence of video games right now. They're not always... So if, if one, I have a, several clinical cases where they're either parents or they're young people themselves, you know, young adults who want to socialize in real life, but whose friends are all online. And so it becomes very difficult to be the, the person who suggests going somewhere when everyone else is kind of unwilling or anxious about that. And so they retreat back because they want to have social interaction to, you know, social media or what have you. What do you think about that? The pull of the others and the social forces on the use of an object? Yes, absolutely. I think, again, it would depend at what developmental age the child is. But I think the most natural and normal thing in children is that they do want to relate and they do want friends, but they are very influenced. And again, I think this would come from their early environment and the message messages they get from their parents, not just at the start, but all the way through. Because survival of the object, as Winnicott referred to, continues all the way through development until you leave home. Um, and I think it still continues in adult life. Again, I think it would depend on the parents around and the kind of encouragement to talk about these difficulties. But of course, they got the message that actually it was healthy to lock down and lock in. How do we undo that message and say it's now safe, you're, you're able to go out? especially if they would, you know, which they all would have been traumatized by that. What is the level of the trauma is what would need to be explored. So fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I guess we're having a COVID surge right now. And I, I'm just thinking about what that means when we tell our children, don't worry, you're vaccinated and boosted. You have a mask, you can go. But they know that there's a COVID surge. It, it always links back to the initial trauma that we all had. Yes. Absolutely. And and we're all witnessing what's happening in China and what, you know, it's, it's on the news. And even though certainly in the UK, we're free of it, I say, <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, but I shouldn't say this too quickly. Meanwhile, last week, one patient was online all week because she'd been with a friend 
who had COVID and she was terrified of bringing it into my consulting room. Mm-hmm. I was very relieved that she is taking that responsibility. And when we were online again, it was a reminiscent of the 15 months that we had online, 2020 to 2021, five times a week, you know, when it was so unusual then. Now we have two settings. We have the consulting room and the online I'm very struck by how much work can actually be done in both settings. Uh huh. And it's different. It's different in both settings, no? I mean, there's different kinds of transferences or different kinds of relating or different things that we are able to access. Absolutely. Yes. And it's fascinating. And different things get said in different settings. And in this particular patient I'm thinking of feels much freer to talk about negative feelings when she's online than she does in the room. Fascinating. Fascinating, which is useful, I'm guessing, to the to the process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So I like to play this kind of devil's advocate sort of scenario. I tend to think that video games are masturbatory and a waste of time for the most part. I also don't play them very often and I'm not very good at them. So that might be my own bias, but I can appreciate that some of them are very creative and are very brilliant in how they're designed. And I wondered if you have any examples you might share that include video games that you've heard of or patients who have worked through video game addiction or any of that, anything that's been facilitative of an analytic process, facilitative of growth and development, anything that you think are beneficial when it comes to video games? Yeah, well, I do have an example of of a father whose son was two when he first bought one of the earliest affordable computers back in the 80s, a Sinclair Spectrum. And together they played simple mathematical games. And the little boy particularly liked a video game called Horace Goes Skiing, which he also played with his older brother, who was Mm. years older than him. Now, this child loved maths, um, which was initiated during that time with his father. And later in life, he studied computer science. And now he's a man of 41 and and he's a programmer. Now, we could think that this was because he'd had that formative experience with his father at the age of two and his brother. Interestingly, the paternal grandfather was also mathematical and enjoyed the early computers before Windows. I don't know whether you remember that. Yeah, you're too. MS-DOS, yes. Mm-hmm. I remember um, using the DOS prompt, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Very different now, very antiquated. However, as I've been saying since I began, the roots of this ability, I think, started in the womb. And I think the mother is the first facilitating environment. She facilitates the relationship with the father And it's her emotional setting that is the foundation for the subsequent formative learning experiences. So although I think the father made a big difference, it was the roots of that difference came from the mother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you're downplaying any innate ability that's given to us by genetics. Of course, Winnicott probably wouldn't say much about genetics. Well, you know, he he was a medic, unlike me. And he did go to a school that studied science, which is why he ended up being a doctor. But I think what he called the innate, he talked about innate inherited tendencies, but genetics 
cannot be ignored. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think he'd be the first person to say that. But I think he'd also be the first person to say that without the mother's emotionality, genetics means nothing. It's all part and parcel. That's sort of a hopeful view in some ways, because that implies that development can conquer all different kinds of things. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So going back to video games, there's all these like medically informed video games that are coming out to that are designed to help kids pay better attention or learn better. They're almost like gamified psychological tools or gamified stress management tools and so on that are being promoted by startups and hospitals and so on where we live. I tend to shudder when I think of those things. They seem too short, too little, too too distant from human interaction for my tastes. Uh, what do you think of that? And what do you think Winnicott would think of those kinds of things? Kind of reward and punishment kinds of tools that help you learn to control your breathing or think more healthy thoughts or what have you. Again, I really think I'd have to think about it case by case because there may be a good use of it for certain children. It's, it's you know, I'm a psychoanalyst, but it doesn't mean I'm against behavioral therapy, for example. One of my most successful cases in analysis had had a 12-week treatment of behavioral therapy before she came into analysis. And it helped her very, very, very much with her panic attacks and it was at the end of that treatment when she was able to control her panic attacks that she then started to think, and that she didn't know a word of Freud and wasn't particularly interested, but she did feel at the end of that course that maybe something deeper was going on. And she stayed in analysis with me for 13 years and grew. But I, you know, I, I don't think without that help that she had with behavioral therapy, she would have been able to take on the demands of going through analysis, because it is demanding coming four times a week, five times a week. In her case, she came once a week for a while, then it gradually increased her ability, as it were, to tolerate the regression during the hour and then getting up from the couch, leaving and coming back the next day. Mm -hmm. Long run, I think it helped her enormously. So I think going back, yes, I, I agree with you, a techno-dominant world that replaces human relationships is chilling. Mm -hmm. But if it is helping someone to relate, depending on how that's done, and again, it goes back to the use of an object, the use of technology, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rather than replacing relationships. Uh-huh, uh-huh, wonderful. Well, I know you've just published a new book, and you're going to be visiting us in San Francisco at my institute, at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California, from May 1st through May 6th, as our international visiting scholar this year, or next year. Is there anything you'd like to share about your current or upcoming work, or anything more about what we've discussed today? Well, it's been very helpful for me to have to think about these topics, uh, Nicole, and thank you very much for inviting me again. In terms of coming to visit you, I'm very much looking forward to developing this paper on the Frankenstein complex. And I think it does link in, doesn't it, with technology? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, because Mary Shelley, when she wrote that, of course, technology was advancing 
so much in those days. And many people who review her book think of the Frank, the creature of Dr. Frankenstein as related to all those scientific developments in the 19th century. What I think of is how Mary Shelley, whose mother died as a consequence of giving birth to her, how that had an effect on her mind, mm-hmm. how that led to what I'm proposing in that public lecture that I'll be giving with you, how that led to her fantasies of her birth story, because I think each one of us has an unconscious birth story. And I think the writing of Frankenstein for Mary Shelley, well, what I'm going to suggest in that lecture is that that was her birth story. And I want to elaborate on that with some clinical examples. And um, I've been working on that for several years, and I'll be working on it further to bring in next May. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how people respond to it and how we can play together and work on some of those ideas. So am I. So am I. And thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Todd Essick about how psychoanalysts think about teleanalysis, telehealth, and technologically mediated meetings altogether. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.